Hello, scorekeepers! Welcome to episode 5 of Minnesota Opera's podcast, The Score. On this week's episode, we'll unpack our complicated feelings around the verdict heard around the world before putting Derek Chauvin in the rearview forever, hopefully, and turning our attention to the incredible art and artists in our community, which means we have our first guest. We'll be joined by Emily Mettenbrink, the incredibly talented and black violinist who started the Tiny Balcony Concert Series, a series of musical experiences from her home that managed to unite a community, even in the middle of lockdown. And then, of course, as always, we'll send you out into the weekend with a PB&J, a moment of pure black joy. You know what time it is. It's time to check the score. Let's do it to it. And it's an exciting day, y'all, because we have our first guest. Yay! Isn't that amazing? Growth. Somebody actually wants to join us. Growth. <laughs> That's what you call that. It's growth. It's <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so we're so excited to have Emilia Mettenbrink joining us later on in the show. She is an amazing violinist. Uh, she plays um, for the Minnesota opera and the minnesota orchestra and all sorts of places and uh you know she is here to talk with us about her experiences as a black woman um in classical music and being a minneapolis native and all of the craziness um that has happened over the past year here in our community and speaking of which (laughs) last week was it last week because it it feels, feels like, like it's been... <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't even know. Like, you know, obviously the three of us have been living here um, in uh, in the Twin Cities, which also I want to, as always, acknowledge that we are on Dakota land. Um, but it has been a roller coaster of emotions um, mm-hmm. for for everyone um, here in the Twin Cities. And last week, um, we learned um, that the jury convicted Derek Chauvin in the murder of George Floyd on all accounts. And uh, we were not here last week to discuss that. But here we are today, about a week and a day um, past that verdict. And I don't know, y'all. How are y'all feeling? Well, <laughs> crickets, crickets. <laughs> crickets, crickets, crickets. I'll add a cricket sound effect. <laughs> Complicated, yeah. conflicted. Ugh, I'm. Glad for whatever relief <laughs> the verdict may have given some people, and you know, grateful for a chance to exhale a bit, um, but also a little concerned about some of the conclusions people were drawing 
about um, what the guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin means for the system overall. So a, a, a mix, a storm, yeah. hurricane of emotion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about y'all? Yeah, I mean, the same kind of, right? Like, it's a huge relief that he was not acquitted. Um, and, you know, it was an interesting moment to kind of reflect on this while at the same time understanding that, what is it, another six people of color were killed by the cops I mean, in the intervening days, like all of them <laughs> unarmed, you know, and several of them extremely young. So yeah. it wasn't, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I guess that's my contribution to the, the crickets moment. I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm, I'm still trying to process it. It feels like, you know, a, a bit of progress on one front while at the same time feeling like we took six steps back in the same week. And that's it's just a lot to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think my 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 sentiments really echo both of yours i i feel a measure of relief especially for mr floyd's family um Mm -hmm. that they were able to just have that moment where you know finally you know our justice system as deeply deeply flawed as it is in this moment was able to give this family that conviction um I think is is just so lovely, and I think about all of the families that have not gotten that over yeah. the last four hundred years, um, and you know that brings sort of a measure of you know peace. I feel like you know just to sort of my heart, but at the same time, it's just like. You know, in 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 the moment, I think that the the part that really got me was when the judge sort of started to go down the line asking the individual jurors, mm-hmm. you know, is this your is this your, you know, judgment? And you know, they all said yes, 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 going down the line. And that's the part that kind of broke me, and some tears left my eyes um, because it was just seeing something I'd never seen before. Um, and then for that to be like followed up immediately by Micaiah Bryant's murder yeah. in Columbus, like literally, like you know, as the verdict is being read, this young woman is being shot um, in front of her home as she's trying to defend herself. Um, and then in the the next few days, just seeing another one, and then another one in North Carolina. Andrew Brown and Virginia and just all of <laughs> this this sentiment that seems to be in the air that's like, okay, well, the justice system got this right, so now they're going to you know continue to get it right and we don't have to worry anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, sweetie, that is not how this works mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> you know, and then to see like Nancy Pelosi out there being like, thank you, George Floyd, <sighs> for being murdered 
so that, you know, justice will, your name will become synonymous with justice. Like, like, I think to your point, Paige, sort of some of what people are taking away from this is just like wild. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, like I, I just, I kind of feel like I'm in the same boat as you all that like, I just, it feels so complicated and that I have not, quite sorted my feelings about it. I'm happy that he was not acquitted um, and that we don't have to sort of clean up what that mess would have been, but there are still so many other messes hmm. um, <laughs> to, oh, yes. uh, to clean up. And it's just so huge and so st- systemic that it's... Yeah. Ah! <laughs> yeah. it, it just it, it boggles the mind. Yeah. The reaction to, uh, uh, mm, I, I won't say every, not certainly not everyone, but a lot of the conversation around um, the murder of Micaiah Bryant specifically was upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, just what happens when, you know, someone isn't the, quote, perfect victim, I right. guess. And, you know, the the rush to... To, to try to criminalize a black girl who was really trying to defend herself from from what everything I read. Yeah. Um, who, I, I mean, who of us did not go to, I, okay, well, maybe you went to a fancy high school where people didn't get in fights like that. But most of us yeah. went to a high school <laughs> where <laughs> fights happen. Um, people like, it's it, it's a part of growing up. It's like it's a thing that happens, unfortunately, um, and just that she could be trying to defend herself, yeah, and and calling for help, actually, and instead be killed, and all the people rushing to say she was just it was justified because she was holding a knife. What is a knife to a gun? Right. Don't we literally have a phrase called "Don't bring a knife to a gunfight"? <laughs> <laughs> like we have a, a common phrase that that clearly <laughs> we understand they're two totally different things, and and we have all seen West Side Story. Teenagers have been fighting right. uh, with knives since right. time immemorial. I Hello? think the difference is is when it involves like a group of you know white boys, then like we yeah. all break out into song. Right. Just keep it cool. Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's just like a part of being a teenager. They all choose violence at some point. Like we know that's what happens. So yeah, <laughs> it's like part of adolescence. Like <laughs> you might get in a couple tussles. It's just what happens growing up. And and that that had to end her dying is just yeah yeah. It reminds me of like a specific kind of disregard and like lack of protection we have for black girls specifically Mm. especially black girls Mm -hmm. you know there's this this way that sometimes i i I really think about the dynamics of how people get acquitted um, in cases like these and the number of times that something has happened where the justification has been it was a black or brown person who may or may not have had a weapon, but I was afraid for my life. The number of times that is recognized as being a suitable, uh, appropriate mitigating factor to some heinous act, it's, it's just 
shocking, right? And yeah. and the fact that we haven't spent more time as a as a society trying to unpack what is it that's so scary about us to people. You know what I mean? And and like not to get on a, a distant tangent, but you know, the number of times where I would read these cases where um, a straight man had been acquitted of, of killing a gay or a trans person mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. of, you know, a claim of being afraid of someone coming on to them, right? Like, and, and that again, being considered some kind of a mitigating factor for these decisions. And it's just like, what is really going on in this country that people are even okay with the idea I was scared, so I killed somebody, and therefore there don't even have to be consequences to that action because the person who I killed was so scary, so fundamentally outside of the mainstream that this is somehow justified, just out of my fear. Like, that's the piece that I get stuck with. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that, I believe it's a Nikki Giovanni poem um, where she's talking about there's a a spider in her home and she just sort of reflexively reacts to it and kills it and then the last line of the poem is about how she was feeling so much guilt and actually like I don't think it's actually like okay to just like kill something just because you felt a moment of fear yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. like yeah. that that's actually not a justification mm-hmm. um for taking anyone's life even a spider um and it just, uh, but you know, I, it's hard for me, especially in the case of Micaiah Bryant to see that as sort of a justification or Adam Toledo or, yeah. or any of them, but like specifically in, in Micaiah's case, because I mean, he was on the scene for what, a couple of seconds. Yeah. You see the body cam footage. Like, I don't understand how you could possibly assess a situation in that short amount of time. No. And then justify it as you were scared for your own life or someone else's life. You know, it's it's two teenagers, two or three teenagers, like, in a fight. Go in there and break it up. Yeah. Actually do the humane thing. (laughs) And go in there and figure out what the actual problem is. Because I assure you, the solution to the problem isn't that, like, a 16-year-old girl's life has to end. You know, I was reading today that um, Rudy Giuliani's home was searched by federal investigators. Mm -hmm. And it came after the former mayor being under investigation for months. Months and months and months have culminated in a warrant to search his house. However, seconds can pass and suddenly it's okay to shoot a black person, right? And and I appreciate that these are apples and oranges for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, but it's just the idea that with someone like Rudy Giuliani, even to go into his home, right? Just to go into his home, you wanna clear X number of legal hurdles, you wanna make sure that you have giving yourself every kind of coverage under the law. But when it's a matter of 
of taking the life of a, of a young black or brown person, like it, it's the thing that no one has to consider for more than a second or two. And, you know, juries historically have been very comfortable with only deliberating for a few hours and determining that someone was justified in making this act, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, even with the small bit of progress from the Chauvin trial, like it just left me thinking about how broadly unequal things in this society are, just all over the place, from small things to, to massive ones. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I saw that sort of disturbed me um, in the aftermath, and, you know, sort of bringing, bringing it back to sort of an earlier point um, that we were making, um, that, you know, in the, in the aftermath, we had all of these, you know, officials, elected officials, politicians coming out and talking about, you know, the George Floyd um, Police Reform Act and how that needs to be passed by Congress. But apparently, you know, I, I follow a lot of, you know, I'm from D.C., so I follow a lot of journalists, <laughs> um, you know, and sort of political quote unquote insiders or whatever um, on Twitter. And one of them was saying that, you know, they had spoken to a number of congressional aides um, off the record. And they were saying that, yeah, you know, they're going out there and they're saying, like, we need to pass these laws or whatever. But like, in reality, um, for them, the urgency has been greatly reduced um, with this verdict in order to change things. Mm. Um, because like, we can make the argument that the justice system worked the way that it was supposed to, and mm -hmm. it will continue to do so. So we can just sort of, you know, this isn't this isn't the the most urgent priority on our plates, and I feel like you know that that brings up like so much just like agita for like me, like especially like in this work that we do mm -hmm. around equity and inclusion um, here at the opera. Not to like call out the opera, of course, um, but just this idea that I had just sort of in general like now that like sort of the Trump era quote unquote is quote unquote over, um, <laughs> which, you know, it very much is not, as we all know, the Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's of the world are still out there being yep. monsters. Um, still got their jobs. Still mm -hmm. got their jobs. Still got their jobs. Um, but one of the fears that I had was that like, you know, EDI work would become less of a priority for companies everywhere um, just because it's like, okay, well, you know, Trump's not in office anymore, like talking about, you know, Mexicans are rapists and grabbing by the P word and all that business. So like, we don't actually, that this isn't as urgent anymore. And just to sort of see that come to fruition, because even in conversations I've had with certain folks, like very well-meaning, nice, you know, woke ish <laughs> folks um you know just being like okay well now we can rest easy mm -hmm. thank goodness you know and it's just like i i just i don't understand that <laughs> <laughs> i don't understand it it's like you know like like seeing a house on fire and it's like well we we put out the kitchen so you know <laughs> don't worry about the bedrooms it's fine <laughs> Yeah, I don't know who you're talking to, but it does sound mighty white of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I figured that was understood. <laughs> <laughs> the white is silent. <laughs> yeah, I I'm also reminded of um some some things I I've seen uh first let me say I'm I'm very I'm very grateful for for white folks who take on the labor of gathering other white folks so that we don't have mm-hmm. to if that's you bless you um <laughs> keep keep doing it please <laughs> um you 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 have our permission <laughs> <laughs> please please permission we urge you we strongly mm-hmm. urge you um that of just you know breaking a post i saw breaking down like some typical I guess very, <laughs> very white and unaware statements that people are that you know people are making of the time right now, and uh, one of one of the things that I think I've in, encountered a lot is, especially in in multiracial spaces, mm-hmm. um, a lot of you know centering of just like individual white people's self improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about, you know, how can, how can I be better or how do I talk to this family member or, or friend? And it's, it's just interesting <laughs> that that's still where, still where, where we're going in, um, and just how we have how we have these conversations. I mean, it's it's one thing to like start centering, you know, a white person's self improvement in a multiracial space where you know you're talking about current events. That's already problematic enough to, you know, not be centering the most marginalized in the room. But also that you know we're still bringing it back to this individual thing and not like a huge like massive collective effort that we need. <laughs> to change like I in all in all the suggestions of self-improvement or should I do this or should I do that or how do I talk to my racist Mima like (laughs) all of it's still I what I don't hear enough of is you know how can I um maybe be helping people who are running for office who have a really progressive view or progressive uh, vision for for my city how can what about organizing (laughs) organizing gets a lot of it gets a lot of things done i want to see more white people organizing themselves into coalitions or whatever you need to bring some out bring about some type of like bigger communal change like that's that's one of the biggest things I see like continuing to be to be perpetuated and in I mean and in the way people are viewing the the guilty verdict also like this individual we can point to this individual case of this individual officer um being convicted and we'll just take that as great we're we're, we're doing good and <laughs> like wipe your hands take a rest we're fine and we really just really have to get away from that 
Yeah, you know, just this idea that, like, it's all these, like, isolated incidents instead of, like, this giant systemic issue that affects all of us. I think it's, like, this fundamental misunderstanding of race and racism and how it works, especially in this society, where it's not about, like, it's not about your feelings. Mm -mm. It's not about, like, how you feel or relate to this person, it's about these huge, just like structural barriers um, that have been placed in front of people of color for centuries <laughs> that we we all are a part of, that all white people, no matter how you individually feel about the, bl- the individual black person who's sitting in front of you, benefit from. And so what it, it's going to take, yes, like you said, is collective action that we all have to like start like thinking about the and and I guess it's just like this sort of like wild wild west American manifest destiny ethos like <laughs> all about like the the individual white dude like going out there and settling land that's already you know occupied and yeah. you know making his own way and pulling himself off by the bootstraps it's just sort of this American <laughs> ideal that we all so we all just like resort back to this idea of like the individual and it's the individual's matter or individual's feelings and actions that matter when it's like no like this is just this giant problem that's not going to be solved by like one person like sitting down and like having like a conversation with Mima at Thanksgiving like (laughs) 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 have y'all heard of facing whiteness it is um an interdisciplinary project at Columbia that was um, funded by Mellon while I was still there. Um, And I believe the person who ran the program is a sociologist named Peter Bierman, where um, among other things, there were hundreds of interviews with white people around the country, white people of different ages. And um, it was asking them lots of different questions about how they understood their own whiteness. And the thing that was so interesting, most of the people who were interviewed, and again, it was hundreds of white people of different ages around the country, mm-hmm. really showed no real connection to whiteness as a thing, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. talked on this podcast specifically about feeling black, what feeling black means to each of us, how it shows up into our identity and why we feel the need in different spaces at different moments to identify, you know, quite intentionally as black. And it's interesting to both of your points around why maybe you don't see more of the ways the conversations with our white counterparts going from something like, um, hey, here is sort of like moment of ideation around my personal responsibility or how I am personally affected by race to then something that speaks directly to collective action to make something happen around that. And it actually seems like there is something about whiteness that like almost blinds individuals to the like larger set of forces that they are participating in and that they benefit from, right? And we talk a lot Mm. about people just actively not understanding their own white privilege. And part of what that appears to be, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert in it, my degrees are in blackness, um, but part of what it appears <laughs> to be is like an actual sort of 
misunderstanding of the fact that lots and lots of white people are going through exactly the same thing and that they can come together and mm. and sort of move things by linking their individual experiences like that individualism runs so deep that it actually runs counter in a lot of instances to people just making a kind of a choice to do something as a group in the ways that I feel like we as, as people of color in this country are absolutely conditioned to want to sit down with other people of color and, and find things that we can do collectively to, to shift things. And it's like that moves in completely the other direction. And I feel like where we're getting to see it a lot um, are these campaigns right now where people are trying to move folks on the right towards getting vaccinated. It's like that, again, mm. that sense of individualism, it's sort of blinding people to whatever kind of potential for collective good that could happen simply by people coming together and saying, we all, have, we all share a common interest. I, I find it really interesting, as, as much as I find it alarming, that it, it's like these pieces don't connect for a lot of people in our society, which is why I think we end up in these places where we have major issues and then seemingly no means of, of solving things like the gun violence problem, where everybody just sort of wrings his or her hands and then, you know, kind of throws them up in the air and, you know, it's there's nothing we can do. We just all agree that we have a problem. Like, it's, a, it's very curious. It's a weird thing to observe in this country and, and to try to make sense of. It is really strange. And I like to the, I, <laughs> I always wonder if it's like a thing that's changed over the years too in the US. If like, are we coming, becoming more just individualistic or is this just like always been a function of, whiteness it probably has been in some way but like to the extreme that it that it yeah. is now like i think about like you know the like rainbow coalition um and what like fred hampton of the black panthers chairman fred was doing um and like people of different races and ethnicities who had organized amongst themselves and realized hey we have some really messed up conditions even white people like white appalachian people uh, that a lot of folks would just say, oh, they're just rednecks, like could organize themselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then organize with black folks, with Puerto Rican folks that, hey, we actually kind of all have the same messed up conditions. Like <laughs> we should hmm. we should collectively do something about it. So I'm gonna go talk to my people over here. You talk to your people over there. I'm a, and you talk to your people and then we're all going to come together and. Like, I hope that things like that can still can still happen. Um, but it takes like a certain it really takes a certain like, I guess, willingness to just forgo individualism mm -hmm. in order to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And and sort of a, a baseline belief that maybe this sort of like collective good actually is beneficial on some level, right? You have yeah. to wonder yeah. if if part of what makes it so complicated for folks is that a lot of people just don't actually believe that it is better, that there are any solutions that may exist in, in sort of 
this coming together and it's 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 really astounding until you overlay this behavior on American history and you kind of see the ways that it's allowed a lot of challenges to either recur or just never be solved even a little bit in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose one of the things that is sort of giving me a bit of hope in this moment is some of the collective action that is being taken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially among artists and artist communities, you know, amazing yeah. things like Black Table Arts and Million Arts Movement. I know, Paige, Woo! you were just at Black <laughs> Table Arts this past weekend leading a workshop. I was. That's amazing. That's I so was. cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for mentioning it. But yeah, yeah, I feel like like low key, more like high key artists are always Mm -hmm. leading leading the way Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this moment. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not just me, not me, but many, many others and like across movements in history. So, you know, it's kind of appropriate that I I feel like sometimes are people going to be like, why are they talking about this on an opera podcast? And like, <laughs> I did not come here for critical race theory. I just came here to <laughs> hear y'all talk about Verity or something. Like, <laughs> but I mean, it's true that like artists have always been part of this. Artists, have, the arts have always had something to say. So yeah. there you go. And I am super excited to see what artists have to say about this movement going forward and what, you know, what, you know, who, who, Paige, you know, who is, who, who says that quote about, um, it's an artist's job to make the revolution irresistible? Uh, Tony Cade Bambara. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, and I really see that as our job. So I guess hopefully, Moving forward, we can put sort of Derek Chauvin in the rear view. Mm-hmm. We won't put all of these issues, obviously, in the rear view, but we can put him in the rear view um, and move forward and just start talking about some beautiful art. So I think, that. yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And so I think the first step is our wonderful, incredible interview with the amazingly talented Emilia Mettenbring. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Emily. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are so excited. We have our first guest. I know I keep saying it over and over again, (laughs) but I'm just so excited that somebody wants to be here and join us and talk to us. Um, So today we are joined by the incredibly talented Emily Amettenbrink. She is a violinist with the Minnesota Opera Orchestra. She's also a principal second violin of the Sphinx Virtuosi, and she's a Minneapolis native. So um, in addition to her work um, with Evan Opera and Sphinx, uh, she often plays with the Minnesota Orchestra, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, all sorts of places. And you may know her um, because in 2020, she began a concert series from her uh, small balcony in St. Paul, um, appropriately uh, titled the Tiny Balcony Concert Series, um, <laughs> <laughs> which um, has just provided a lot of just relief and joy um, to folks during this 
ridiculous pancake breakfast that we have been dealing with um, for the last year. Um, so we just want to uh, welcome Emily. Thank you so much for joining us on The Score. Hi, Yay! Yay! <laughs> Insert <laughs> applause track here. <laughs> Absolutely, I have to figure out those sound effects. <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm good. I already got my yoga practice in, so I am... I'm on the right frame of mind and <laughs> yeah, it's sunny out for the first time in in like a while. two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, before you joined us, um, we were actually having um, a chat just about, you know, we're about eight days removed from Derek Chauvin and <sighs> the verdict and all of that. And so just as, you know, a Minneapolis native, um, you know, I think all three of us are relatively new to the area but as a native of this of this city it was just you know curious you know what has it been like you know the last year and the last um couple of weeks um as a black woman as an artist um in this community so i should preface that not only i am i a native of minneapolis but i my childhood home where my mother still lives where my father lives where i grew up is a block away from George Floyd oh, Square. Wow. Wow. And so that day, I, I live now in St. Paul with my partner and I heard the news that day and then saw it, of course, like everyone else did. And immediately was like, my dad, just like, dad, is he okay? And I called the house and mom was like, we don't know what's going on and everything is crazy over here. And so it was super heavy. I mean, I've heard it's not the first time. No, we all know that it's not the yeah. first time something right. that like that right. has happened. But this was like, you know, when people say it hits close to home, like this was literally that's where mm. I caught the bus in the morning to go to school like that. That's yeah. where I bought gas when I started to drive. That's that was like my home. And so it felt really really heavy and scary. And then those next few days were very tumultuous. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but well, of course you do. It got really crazy with the um, protests and people coming in from out of town to kind of hijack those protests. And mm -hmm. so um, our neighborhood advisory over in that Bryant neighborhood, they were, they had advised that everyone you know, maybe stay up or try and, you know, hold vigil, somebody kind of stand watch and, you know, put garbage cans away. So there were places to light things on fire or things like that. And so my mom is an older woman now. And so she asked me to come over and I spent two nights at not sleeping at my mm -hmm. mom's house, like sitting on my front steps, yeah. um, asking people to leave who didn't belong there. And, wow. um, you know, holding hands with my neighbors, almost literally to keep each other safe from outsiders. And so that was, I've never, never thought that I would ever have to do that for someone, especially not my mother. And mm -hmm. um, it made me so appreciative of that home that she made for us and how safe I felt there growing up because for a moment that safety was like threatened. And so I, the whole rest of the summer was in and out of those feelings of like, am I safe? Are mm -hmm. we all safe? Is this get what's what happens next? Like it just felt like this constant feeling of 
doom isn't right, but just like something might be over here that I need to make sure I'm, you know, accounting for and all of my, whatever I'm doing. And I became pretty vocal on my tiny balcony concerts, <laughs> um, you know, telling people that it matters if you have those signs in your yard and like us people of color, it, like it does make a difference. I feel safer in my community. I feel more accepted in my community. If I see that those signs of, um, unity from my community around me. So, um, that was something that it made me want to speak louder and to speak to that, even though I was supposed to be just playing happy music from, from the trees. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's how that felt to me. It was just like, I, I can't be silent any longer. Not that I was silent before, but yeah. So was that part of the inspiration behind starting the Tiny Concert Series? I mean, I guess for, for people who don't know, um, maybe you could just explain um, a little bit about. Um, yeah. yeah, so last summer was weird, y'all. Yeah, um, yeah it was. <laughs> Start from the beginning. So I got done with the Sphinx tour. Sphinx Virtuosi got done with tour on March 11th. And I, they literally dropped me off at the airport wow. at like three in the morning in Utah and said, bye-bye and we'll see you in a month because we were supposed to play with the Minnesota Orchestra. And I came home, I went immediately from the airport. My partner picked me up, dropped me off at the opera center for my first opera rehearsal that morning to start at 10 a.m. And I was five minutes late <laughs> because <laughs> yay. Um, and then by that night we had all received messages from the opera staff saying, nope, not gonna do that anymore. And everything's finished and COVID was the new life. And um, I, I already said I teach yoga and I went to teach my yoga class on Saturday. And then on Saturday evening, I got, uh, we all got called into the office either virtually or actually in person. I happened to be teaching. So I was there and the manager said, we're closing the doors. And so then there, there went my like Zen <laughs> happy second life. And I was like, Oh my gosh. I mean, that must've been terrifying. Yeah. And then Monday morning I woke up and I had an ear infection or what I thought was an ear infection. My oh ear my hurt. And I was like, Hmm, that's strange. And I went to the minute clinic cause we live in the great state of Minnesota and you can just go and they check you out and they gave me some antibiotics and I thought everything would be okay, but it wasn't. And my ear kept hurting and hurting worse. And I went back in and they didn't know what it was. And then I went back in again on Sunday and was like, listen, something's really wrong. I don't, this isn't right. I'm losing my hearing at this point. And thank goodness for this beautiful nurse at CVS on a Sunday morning who was like, I think that this other thing is wrong. And that's why you're feeling the way you are. And she gave me some meds and said, but you need to call the doctor because I can't really do what I should do because I'm not a doctor. So you have to call your main doctor in the morning. By Sunday night, I didn't have any feeling or ability to move the left side of my face. It was drooping oh my oh my like I'd oh had a stroke and I couldn't hear it all out of my ear. And I was terrified. Oh so turns out in the ER on Monday morning, I had... Um, uh, shingles and it had infected the inside of my ear. That's where it had decided to live. And it attached itself to the nerves that control the left side of my face and had paralyzed part of 
my body. So yeah, I was in, I had, yeah, MRIs and I was on lots of fun medications and it was as scary as life could be for a violinist who all of a sudden couldn't hear. And oh, by the way, I couldn't eat because I would drool and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was like, it lasted for like a month and I saw a lot of doctors and then I started to feel better. And as you can tell, I can smile with both sides of my face again. So that's awesome. But it took about a month. Um, And so at the end, very end of April, I hadn't touched my violin in a month. And I was like, I wonder if I can still play. Like that was weird. And I wonder if I can hear and what that's going to sound like because my ear was all affected and whatever. And um, so I just one night walked out on my balcony and was like, let's see if I can play Bach because I don't even know if I can play Bach. And I didn't. I kind of told my next door neighbors, like, I'm going to go outside and play and please listen because they're on the board for the opera. And so I was like, just so somebody's listening. And they texted me afterwards and said, oh, that was great. And our, the neighbors on the other side said, you should do it again. So the next night I did it again. And then the next night I did it again. And then someone on next door, you know, that beautiful app, um, yeah. to keep your neighbor safe. <laughs> they, somebody posted like, oh, I saw this violinist and I was walking my dogs and it changed my day and it made me feel so much better. And I was like, Aww. I think I should keep doing this. So I just kept doing it every night, except when it was raining. And that lasted until mm, July. And then I was like, I don't think I can play every night because I'm running out of stuff to play. (laughs) And so I went down to two nights a week and I started inviting my friends. And one night my girlfriend who's a ballerina was like, Hey, can I come and dance? And I was like, yes. And so she came and danced one night. And then by the end of the summer, I was doing like mini ballets on my sidewalk um, with her entire ballet company. And yeah, it was, wow. It was wild. All because I thought I wasn't going to be able to play the violin anymore. (laughs) 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 So there you go. That's so cool though. That like something that like came out of a really like harrowing experience and Mm. like, sounds like a moment of like desperation of like, oh snap, can I still play this instrument I love then turned into like something that was beautiful medicine for a bunch of people mm-hmm. yeah people and- kept thanking me and I was I I would have to tell them like first and foremost I have to tell you I did this for myself because I was afraid <laughs> that I wasn't going to be able to play anymore and I'm so glad that it's healing for others because I would probably be doing it anyway <laughs> so- I just think back to April 2020 and none of us knew what was going on no. And it was just Mm. all so scary. And like, you know, the air is poison. Stay Mm. inside. Like, what? Mm. Okay. Um, So to be able to just give that gift to so many people during such a scary time, I just think it's such a beautiful thing. And that it's transformed into something so amazing um, with so many gifted artists. it's just like it's so cool so you know I'm curious I mean where where are the the tiny balconies now where are where are 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 we going to continue with it are we hoping to continue with it we're we're crossing both of our fingers and our toes and all the things that we can cross I I applied for a grant through the Humphrey through U of M um to partner with community and um 
I'm waiting to see if I was, if that grant was approved or, or not. And I have a bunch of like plans in the works and I'm kind of practicing anyways, just assuming that they'll say yes and we'll figure out the details later. And um, I've partnered up with the YWCA over here and the Martin Luther King Community Center that's right by where I live. And inside that there's something called the Hailey Q Brown Center that does like a, a daily school program for underprivileged kids and after school stuff for people who don't have um, childcare options and uh, inside that same building, lo and behold, is the Penumbra Theater, which is just mm. as luck would have mm. it. Um, so I got to work with Penumbra as well. So it's it's turned That's into true. kind of a lot of mini projects and possibilities. And I'm just hoping that I can my my obviously I'll play on the balcony in any case, but I just don't want to spend another summer asking my friends to do their great work for free. And so I I really want to pay my artists the way I would expect to be paid myself for my efforts and like my craft. And so I just hope that I can, you know, give people what they're worth so that they don't feel like, not that they do. I think they're happy to play, but I, I just, it's been a whole year and none of us have had much of anything. And I, and I don't want to add to that struggle or that burden. I want to help make it feel whole again. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, have, that's been like a, a huge takeaway for me as a very new arrival to the Twin Cities is how much creativity and creative energy there is in this region. And I'm curious if you could say a couple of things as a Twin Cities native around why there might be such fertile ground for the creation of world-class music here, because it's not just that there are a lot of people who are creators of music, but it's that they're also really gifted musicians, right? So what do you think it is about this town that that breeds that? Well, first of all, I think, you know, for a long time, the Twin Cities is kind of a well-kept secret. Like, since mm. when do you have a city of our size with two, not one, but two major symphony orchestras and like three major art museums and, you know, the Guthrie has won a couple Tonys. And, and so like, we're not coming from a space of like a mid-sized town with one orchestra, which would be great. I mean, that's, that's a great place to live. We have this kind of base of awesomeness. And so as someone growing up in Minneapolis, I always felt invited to appreciate that. Like it would be impossible not to, you know, like, yeah, it's this invitation because it's all around you. And I think this might be changing now a little bit, but when I was growing up, you know, we, everyone had to learn a language in school. Everyone had to learn an instrument in school. Those weren't options that you could opt out of. Those were just like, yeah, you're going to learn how to do these things because we think that they're important. And it's kind of something that was built into the magnet program of the public schools in Minneapolis and the way we fostered a lot of community here in Minnesota. It's, it's kind of one of those things. And it might have a little bit to do with the fact that we have to be inside for <laughs> something close to seven months, you know? Um, I think it's cold and we can't be as outside as we wanna be. So I think that also fosters a feeling of like, how do we create community? How do we share with one another in, in different ways? Mm -hmm. um, I know growing up, you know, for me, it was like Prince and, the underground um, hip hop scene of Minneapolis was so is so vibrant and is mm -hmm. so full, 
and um, just so many opportunities to kind of see and hear people do things. So, and as soon as I see that in others, I think it always creates that feeling of an invitation for you to do it yourself. Like, I think artists are the first ones to be like, Hey, come, come join us. Right. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do your thing. <laughs> so I'm curious. So, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, having to play an instrument in school. Is that when you first picked up the violin and, and realized that you had such a love and talent for it? No, my mom's crazy. Um, She started me on the violin when I was three. So about the time that I could fully walk and run, I was also learning the violin. (laughs) (laughs) My mom was a single parent um, for a little while, and she was in a babysitting co-op with a lot of other moms in our neighborhood. And they would, you know, you like pass the kids around so like somebody could have a day off. And Mm -hmm. um, one of the other moms in the babysitting co-op had a daughter who was like three years older than me who played the violin and took from a teacher in the area. And it was just kind of one of those things. My mom is such a hippie nerd. And, you know, she was all about the, like, how do I make my child's brain grow? (laughs) And this other mom was like, oh, if you put her in music, like it flexes this muscle in the brain and she'll learn better and she'll this and that. And my mom was like, okay, without knowing really anything and just kind of shoved a violin in my hand and shoved me in the same classroom as this other girl and was like, there you go, try it out. And then didn't give me the option to quit for like six years. (laughs) (laughs) Figure it out. (laughs) Well, it worked out, seems like. Yeah. It worked. Um, I actually didn't end up doing a lot of music in school because I was doing so much music out of school. So though my friends were all in music and orchestra and band and what at school, I was doing like youth orchestra and private lessons and all these other things. And so they would, thankfully, by the time high school rolled around, they would let me skip high school orchestra so that I could go to this other orchestra thing um, or take another class, which, yeah. My mom was into that too. Yeah. <laughs> Use your brain. <laughs> well, especially as a woman of color, you know, as you continued on, um, did you, what were some of your experiences um, as you sort of moved into sort of a professional career in classical music? Have you um, experienced, I mean, <laughs> I think I probably know the answer to this, but, <laughs> you know, You know, just what have some of your experiences as a person of color in this particular world um, been like? Have you found yourself um, ostracized or embraced? Both. Um, I, I think I was very naive, very, very, very um, kind of sheltered until I got to college of like what was out there in the world. My mom is um, was a single parent. And then I, my sister's dad moved in with us and kind of just instilled this idea that like, you're, you do whatever you want if you work hard at it and figure it out for yourself. And I, and never believed that there was something that I couldn't do, but I remember being in college and, and kind of being newly aware of how different I was than the other people around me in the music school. I went to the university of Michigan. So there were tons of African-American people at the school, but even then I was not like 
the vast majority of them, the closest thing I could get to someone who had spent that much time getting good at something that they really liked was like somebody who was pre-med and they were, you know, at least two to three years older than me and in a completely different genre of life. And, um, so it, it was, it was enlightening. It was scary to realize like, okay, my colleagues in the music school are not like me physically and haven't had the childhood that I have. Cause I grew up in a pretty, um, diverse and black neighborhood of Minneapolis and then to move into the kind of white space. And then on top of that, notice that my, if I were to seek out black colleagues, I was other there as well. Mm-hmm. Because I remember the first time I heard the word bougie and I was like, oh, I didn't know that that's how I would be titled. Like, that's not something I'd ever choose for myself. Like if you saw my Hmm. my, my upbringing, where I came from, you wouldn't use that word, but like, because of who I had chosen to be as far as a violinist or like Mm -hmm. smarty pants Mm -hmm. or whatever, somehow that put me in this weird category that was, and, and somehow negatively. And I didn't understand that for a long time. And it took me a long time to find like people of color who wanted to, or if I felt like wanted to be friends with me or wanted to hang out with me or felt like they knew who I was. I, I joined a lot of mixed groups on campus, like as many mixed um, ensemble creative folk that I could find, I would kind of collect them along the way. Um, and as far as like being a person of color in the music school, yeah, it was at Michigan when I had my first like moment of like, you don't belong. Um, I had someone tell me that I was only there cause I was, because um, of affirmative action. I've, and, I've heard the same thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like as if I checked some yeah. box for the mm-hmm. school and <laughs> yeah, that was weird. It's like, I actually know because because I'm brilliant. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, no, like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like smarter than you, but like, okay. You know what's, <laughs> it's interesting because I think as, as musicians, we come to the space, especially a learning space with, a, with more than enough humility, with more than a, an abundance of like, I need to learn, grow and, and be self-analytical. So in those first greener moments of me being like, oh, you don't think I belong. There was a part of me that listened. There was a part of me that was like, I need to try harder because I, maybe they think I'm not good enough and maybe they're right. And it, it's, I've struggled with that most of my career, trying to prove maybe to myself as well as to others that I do belong and I do, I can do this as, as well. And, I, and I'm, what you see as some innate ability in me, gosh, that's something that I, yeah, I, I love how it, as soon as they see the talent or the skill, it's like some gift from some outer force. It's not that you like worked your butt off for years and years and years and spent hours in a practice room day after day trying to perfect this thing, but that you were just gifted from God, which is part of it, of course, but like, it's my ability to hone that skill that makes it useful and valuable to right. the world. Right. Um, so yeah, I remember auditions where people would be like complimenting my equipment as the reason that I had played very well. 
Wow. Yeah. Wow. Someone told me that I must have a really old Italian bow because my spiccato was so wonderful. And I said, no, actually my bow was made two years ago, but I spent mm-hmm. the last six months working on my spiccato. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always that. I mean, you spend enough years at it and you realize that it is you, not the thing. But um, yeah, it's been weird along the way, for sure. All kinds of moments. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, somehow we are some, it always seems as though we are endowed with some sort of magic. <laughs> yes <Somehow>. yes <laughs> yes not to be cliche the pixie dust, pixie <laughs> dust above my head. Yep. so um, since part of our professional function is asking ourselves the questions very regularly of what more do institutions need to do to support artists like you in a more robust way during your career so if you you're thinking back to either your time at, at Michigan or subsequent to that, what can people like Rocky and Paige and I be doing to be in better support of your work? Um, I mean, it's hard because you and, and Rocky and Paige are people I kind of looked up, look up to and admire for, for your work in the same industry. So I don't think Aww. that you're good That's examples so nice. of what needs to happen in my end, like, I wouldn't choose you and be like, do this better. But there's a, a ton of things I would say about the industry in general that could be done better. I think that it's important that when we cross boundaries, when we get to a place where, you know, the first African-American wins an Academy Award or the first, that we mark those even on the smallest of scales. So mm-hmm. like when Philadelphia Orchestra hired their first African-American musician, they had a party about it. They ha- it was on social media. It was on the news. It was like they said something to the world because they knew that it meant something. And I think that it can look, I think people, sometimes organizations shy away from that because it looks like tokenism mm-hmm. or it can look like tokenism. But I think it is also so important to celebrate the moments where you can see change happen. Yeah. To celebrate yeah. beginnings yeah. because it turns it can turn the entire organization in a new direction on purpose instead of just letting it be an accident. Because if it's an accident, it might not happen for another millennia and that would be horrible. But if it was indeed something that you're really proud to say, then maybe you move in that direction on purpose again, sometimes sooner rather than later. So I think it's important to take those moments really seriously and celebrate them internally amongst the organization itself, but also externally so that the community around knows. One of the things I realize about Minneapolis is there's this huge community of people that love music and half of them don't know that we have this thing over here called the opera and you can go and it's, you can get really cheap tickets and you, they don't feel any, and if they do know that it's there, they don't think it's for them. And mm-hmm. I want for mm-hmm. it to feel like it's for them. And if, if one of those ways of making it feel like it's for everybody means like showing them who's in the room, who looks like them as many chances as we get, I think that's where you start, you know, mm-hmm. saying like, and we are doing this and we are doing this other thing and we're going to play on a street corner. And cause I think the more we stay in our box and act like everything happens because of only because of the talent and I've got my eyes closed and I'm not paying, then we miss out on these moments to acknowledge the change that we want to make 
and hopefully we all want to make that change, but you know, on the, on the surface of it, we just need to like acknowledge it when it, when it passes us by. I wanted so much for orchestras back when George Floyd happened to like play, play something of an African-American composer and say it out loud Mm -hmm. and have, and go and seek don't sit behind your art, but sit next to it or maybe in front of it and say like, this is what we want it to be. Not what it was 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Because that's, like that. that's what invites new people to the hall. Not like, I'm sorry, but you know, sometimes Mozart doesn't speak to you as much as mm-hmm. look at that girl with curly hair and brown skin and she can do that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, it, it, it's the way that we're going to continue to just sort of evolve and stay alive is, you know, if at some point, you know, like we're out there, we're celebrating, you know, that someone like you is in our orchestra playing the violin and we're being super public about it and super excited about it, then there's going to be like another young girl who is like, oh, well, I was curious about this, this oboe thing. Let me pick it up and try it. And then all of a sudden you've got like the Serena Williams, Serena Williams of oboists, you know, (laughs) (laughs) next generation, like carrying the torch and carrying us into like a new century and a new millennium. And that's, that's so exciting to me um, that we could potentially create this, you know, new, exciting, huge, vibrant artistic um, community um, and keep it going um, long after you know we're we're off this off this planet and and that you know black people could be a, a huge driving force in that is just like so cool and exciting. So yeah, I think fun. we sometimes we miss the boat as as classical artists. We could learn something from our um, from our sports colleagues you know, um, about what, what it means to take away that, that fourth wall at the front of the space, you know, to invite people in and like, would we, would our industry benefit from like, I don't know, cards, like little baseball cards or like, you know, to, to (laughs) highlight people and their skills and their differences. (laughs) And, you know, I always kind of play with that idea of like, if we could make it feel like you know, these are people that you could revere and also feel the same as. Like yeah. if those two things can sit at the at the same table with one another, then do we create a different conversation about who belongs in the space and who gets to listen to the music and who gets to under feel like they understand whatever it is. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I I mean I can say that I'm probably here right now and entered decided to enter theater because I saw somebody, my own sister (laughs) in high school (laughs) on stage in drama club in like the school uh, musical Cinderella. And I saw her (laughs) playing one of the evil stepsisters. And I was like, that is so cool. She looks like she's having so fun, so much fun. I'm gonna be in theater when I get to high school. And I just knew that like my whole childhood and I did it. And now here I am. <laughs> and she's not even in theater anymore. She's a, she's a musician as well. But yeah, like it's because it's because I saw it. Like I saw her and I saw someone, luckily for me, it was someone that I knew also who happened to live in my own household as part of my family. <laughs> so I was like, I can, I can definitely do it. And I'm going to, yeah, 
Yeah. Like it, what if we could just have that happening more often with, with classical music in, in general? Did I ever yeah. tell you this? I had like the same experience with my older sister. Really? Yeah. And she what? was, she, I, I, I was, she's 15 years older than me. And so I was three years old and I remember she was playing Hamlet and for some reason, my parents decided to take a three-year-old to go see Hamlet. But, <laughs> but I mean, why I not? Mean, yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> it totally made sense. Um, but like, I just remember her like being on stage in the costume, like with a sword, um, you know, just like acting yes. her butt off. Like she actually won an award for that um, performance. And like, Work. I was, <laughs> I just was like, I want to do that. I want to do everything that she's doing right now. And so, you know, like your sister, she's an accountant now. Um, <laughs> she still, still loves Shakespeare. Um, but yeah, it, it was one of those just formative moments that like, I'll never forget. And so if we can make more of those moments for more people like us, like, it's just amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And to sit on the other side of that is amazing too. Like, I played a concert a couple of weeks ago for Penumbra. They were doing a special event to um, hold space for the beginning of the trial. And it was all people of color, all people connected somehow to Penumbra theater. And, you know, this woman was uh, a healer. She did like yoga and all that, and she was speaking. And then there was a, a doctor speaking about some other issues regarding like a psychologist doctor and then someone else and then the artistic director of Penumbra and then I I played and we're all on zoom and different little you know as we are now and I'm playing and I see this little girl next to the the doctor this, her daughter must have been all of five <laughs> and um when I finish playing you know I mute my screen and I go back to a listening perspective and comes up in the chat the doctor she writes me she says my daughter is sitting here next to me and in the middle of your performance, she tugged my arm and she said, that girl has curly hair and brown skin and she's playing the violin. And I was like, that's why I'm here. Like that, I, that's it. I don't need anything else from this evening at all. Like I'm, that's everything. Like I was almost in tears. Like that's all I need for the night. And it, it is continually that experience of like no, telling someone else without saying the words, yes, you belong and you could do this too. And this is also an option. And if you feel like, you know, I don't know, whatever your passion is, if I could give somebody the angle that like they belong in that, whatever their passionate space is, yes, all of those things. Yeah. So yeah, that feels enormous on both sides. I'm wondering like how you came to like see yourself reflected in the music that you play because I think a lot of folks think of they think of violin or opera or any like anything that is associated with classical music and they think oh it's just a bunch of music by dead old white men and <laughs> it is. I'm wondering I mean and yeah yeah they are I mean they're not honesty yeah 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 but I wonder how you like came to like see yourself in it and like really really connect with it and even if there's particular like pieces of music that you just really like love to play that 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 touch your spirit well I think what you learn the deeper you go into 
the classical arts is that, you know, artists in general are a little bit um, troubled or tragic at times, you know, like we all, <laughs> every, everyone has a story to tell. And so I think along the way, I'm lucky that I had teachers who never brought it, brought a specific piece of music to me or art in general or a genre of music to me as like something that I couldn't connect to. You know, I never, I was, ne it was never introduced to me as something that I was going to have trouble understanding. You know, it was always that this emotion is sadness or, you know, and, and I had teachers who would talk to me from many different angles. So like if they couldn't get to me in a, in an emotional light, they could through color or through sound texture or so mm -hmm. it was like, an, it, I found myself very early on not always being able as a child and early teenage years, not being able to express myself through words, but finding that I could through music, finding that, that I could find solace or, or a place where music could interpret that which I could not get out of my mouth mm -hmm. and make someone else understand. So for me, it was always a personal connection. It was always just like, this feels like this to me. And then I had teachers and um, colleagues around me who encouraged that, who never said like, no, that's wrong. But just like, okay, what do you do if that, you know, like how do you use the tools that you know, or can you learn a new tool to like help get that across to your audience and share that? Um, and then I, I love emotional composers. Like Shostakovich had a lot of, hardship and and he was a bit of and I'm not supposed to say this word so but he was a bit f you and a lot of his music you know there's like this level of of everything is wonderful and then right below the sore fits it's like and now I'm going to talk to the real people who really know what's going on and I'm going to tell you how <laughs> effed up this really is and so there was there's this dual element which I I find somewhat homey to me like that's I know what that is like I know where that those emotions sit so I like that. And I like the, the tragic stories of people like Tchaikovsky and oh. um, Bartok and people who like struggled through life, you know, had to deal with some things that up until a year ago, I didn't think I was going to have to deal with. You know, I remember standing yeah. on stage 14 months ago and telling an audience like Bartok had to leave his home and like go to a different country because there was war and destruction and, and military down his streets and then like this summer there were military down my streets and I was like gosh I really know what that means now to be that <laughs> frightened and wow. and and I like sitting in that space and understanding through music what that what that does to your artistry and to the way you communicate with others um so I yeah I like I like the darkness I'm I'm a little bit yeah um, <laughs> if, you, if you ask me the kind of music that I listen to outside of classical music, I like the darkness. Like, I love me some blues. I love me some like dark side of jazz. Like I love slow songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, can I, can I ask, cause hearing that sort of gets me thinking about what do we do with our art? when we are in those darker places, right? And I, I frequently think about moments like the one that we're in now, the where we've been for the last, you know, 15 or 18 months or so with the pandemic, 
what opportunities does a, a time like this present to artists who are politically minded, who may have something that they wish to say or do that is intended to move our society forward in a progressive way? Sort of like, what should we be doing right now? What, what are the opportunities that we have before us? Well, I think what I've appreciated most from other people in general, other humans in general throughout this year is when I feel them honestly speaking to the, the hardness of this. Mm -hmm. It's like not trying to cover it up with like, what do we learn? Or like, this is going to teach us this, or, you know, the good part of this is that I get to spend more time with my family or with my dog, <laughs> which is all right. It's all true. But like, to be honest, it's super challenging and it can be really yeah. mm -hmm. hard. And our ability to sit with that and acknowledge it is sometimes more important than our ability to kind of grow above it. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know mm -hmm. and so I find like I talked to a composer the other weekend on Facebook because he had posted this thing about like why is uh, why is everybody writing like slow music and sad music and I was like because it's sad like we're sad right? <laughs> we're allowed to feel challenged and sad and frustrated and all those like it doesn't have to be happy all the time you don't have to go at warp speed like it's okay right. to slow down and why can't we sit with that and be okay with that? So I want to sit in a space where like, I, I love art that comes out of periods of history that are full because it tends to be very accurate. You, <laughs> you tend to be able to remember that or, or other historical periods afterwards can look back on that. And the, the period in history is very clear and vivid because we spoke to all angles of that thing because some of it was really hard and some of it was really angry and some of it was really happy. So I want, I hope that art that comes out of this is something that feels like we want to be together and we can't. Mm. I want it to speak somehow to how much I miss everything. Mm -hmm. Like that feeling of longing, that feeling of disconnect from from a person who is by by all accounts an introvert and I still feel like I miss the world yeah, yeah. and I want that to come through in art and so I guess what that means for me is well for me it meant standing out on the balcony and like reaching out because that was the hardest thing for me you know I wanted to play and I wanted someone to listen and so I reached out and I think a lot of artists have done that. I mean, I'm not the first person to stand on their balcony. It was all over New York and, and, and people were singing and dancing and all in the parks and then whatever. I'm certainly not the first. I won't be the last. But what it, what it says is that we, we need each other. That we're not, I'm not playing the violin for me or I would do it inside of my house by myself. And so I want it to be like, I wish more music and art would happen in the streets. Like the best part yeah. about being in downtown Chicago on a Friday afternoon is like all the live art, yeah. you know, it's not the shopping. It's the like <laughs> drumming in the streets and people like dressed up in strange costumes and like, let's do more of that. That's how we, 
connect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think it should be in the, always. I think the concert hall is a great space. Please, let's not destroy that place. But like, let's also do these things in spaces where we all live and breathe on a more regular basis. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that's not making me sad is this conversation. <laughs> but, you know, I know we said, we said like 20, 30 minutes, but like, you know, I mean, this was so good that, and so I've enjoyed this so much. Um, but before we let you go, Emilia, mm-hmm. is there anything you would like to promote? I hear you have a concert coming up in oh, yeah, well, I wouldn't call it a full length concert. What did I do with my, oh yeah, there it is. Can you see that? Yeah. So my friend, the ballerina, yes. she owns a ballet company called Ballet Collaboratory. And it is exactly that. It's a collaboratory of dancers. So everyone in her company has a artistic role as a dancer, but also has a behind the scenes role and they do marketing or they help with development or they help with ticketing oh, and they're, really cool. they're interactive yeah. as a company. Um, they are also one of the only companies in Minneapolis that has more than one African-American dancer at the moment. Mm-hmm. So um there's, she did that on purpose. It was a purposeful move. It's been, she wants to encompass the classical arts um, as being for all body types and all kinds mm-hmm. of humans and all sexualities and, and however you call yourself or sit in the world, like our, this ballet thing can be for you too. Um, and they've been working during the pandemic and I've been helping them out and they're doing their spring show finally outside in front of real humans again, which is great instead of on the virtual stage. And she said the other day, she said, we're doing an American in Paris, Gershwin. He's awesome. <laughs> you want to play some like Gershwin on your violin before we start? And I said, sure. And so um, there's two concerts, June 5th and June 6th. They're on Como Dioxide. You do have to get tickets. They are going to have like seats for you to sit in and they mean their business. So go to balletcollaboratory.org and you can get tickets and things like that. But I'll be starting each show with a little bit of Gershwin, a little bit of, he wrote some preludes for violin and piano that kind of encompass some of his other music that came throughout the years. And then I'll do a couple ditties from Corgi and Bess that everyone will know. Nice. Well, we'll make yeah. sure that we we put a link um, in the show notes. So, um, you know, make sure you go and you get your tickets and you check uh, check that out because that sounds exciting. I love Gershwin, American in Paris as well. Yes. One of my it. And it's fresh choreography. It's by a living composer and living choreographer, I should say. And, and yeah, I think every bit of it, I just think she's really cool. She's doing all the right things with her company and I aim to support her as she aims yes. to support me. So support yeah. Absolutely. that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, before we let you go, is there anywhere, if anybody would like to follow you, um, is there anywhere that they can go? Or perhaps people outside of the Twin Cities who might want to hear um, a little bit of the music from the Tiny Balcony? Yeah, so I do have a website. It just went live. You can go to tinybalconyconcerts.org. I also have a Facebook page for Tiny Balcony Concerts. You can look for it under that name. Um, both of those places have videos and clips from things that I did last summer. Um, you can see Sphinx performances on YouTube. There are quite a few of those out there now. Um, I recently did a show, um, in collaboration with my other artists from Minnesota opera. And I think that's still live online and you can still see that. So if you go to Minnesota opera, they did a special on the orchestra and 
So those are opportunities where people can see what I do or hear what I do. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, I mean, thank you so much for joining us and talking with us for a few minutes. This was illuminating and wonderful (laughs) and beautiful. (laughs) And everyone out there, make sure that you go and check the links in the show notes to all of that good stuff. Emilia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So nice to see your faces and share with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to do it again. Wonderful. All right. We'll be right back. All right. And we are back, scorekeepers. Wasn't that? That was a word. She, She is fantastic, isn't she? Truly. Yes. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy that she was on. But, you know, that could be our pure black joy for the week. But fortunately, we have other things um, that are making us um, happy this week. So, Lee, why don't you kick it off? Why, thank you. So, I wanted to share a little bit of news coming out of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, The United States has what is apparently its first ever Black Restaurant Week, which is celebrating Black restaurants across North and South Carolina. And it was organized by a brother named Juan Watson, who is originally from um, Jamaica, who has resettled in originally Connecticut, but now down in the Carolinas and has organized this Restaurant Week, which is exciting because as a former New Yorker, one of the highlights of the year was restaurant week, which actually was like (laughs) about four weeks over the course of the year where restaurants in New York City would offer either some sort of a a prefix menu or just pretty decent deals on their um, regular menus. And it was like a, a really big thing in New York because you were often able to get into restaurants, um, like Jean-Georges or Le Cirque that you probably could not get into usually um, because they were so booked. So this is just a a little bit of excitement coming out of the the South where the restaurants are probably quite extraordinary. I am actively Mm -hmm. missing barbecue food the last couple of weeks. One of the funny peculiarities of being married to a vegetarian um, so I was super excited to read about this and <laughs> encourage any of our listeners down yonder to go and have a plate of something awesome and text me about it. Let me know what I missed. That is amazing that that is the first one. Right? I mean, you think mm-hmm. somebody else would have been like, you know, this is just a good idea. So let's do this. But even if it did take, you know, 402 years better late than never. And I wish I could be a part of it. <laughs> Oh, man, that makes me hungry. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I wouldn't do for some good barbecue. Yeah, Listen, I've been dreaming of it. I've been dreaming of it. There's like, I mean, I mean it's not that you can't There's some okay find. places, yeah. Right, right. But it's not like. It's not the same as like, you know, the man 
smoking ribs in the back of an old school bus <laughs> like they do in PG County, Maryland. That's right. exactly what I was going to say. It's not as good as when you just pull up on homie with the sandals and the huge smoker and some empty lot and who's passing out plates mm-hmm. for $10. It's just not the same. It's it is not, not the same. It's not. <laughs> we should get them a restaurant week. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> Well, that sounds amazing. Everyone, please go go fix a plate for us. Yeah, I'm enjoy. looking at the website now, and it because um, I was like, "What? How come I didn't know about this?" And <laughs> I guess it's a thing of just like different regions and different weeks. So you can go to the website Black Restaurant Week and see when it's coming to you. Oh, okay. Hopefully, uh-huh. it's coming here. When is it coming here? Does yeah. it say? You know. Hmm. <laughs> is there like a like a Midwest section somewhere? Yep, Midwest, July twenty third through August first. Hey. Okay, done. There we go. I'm there. And, and okay, you know we're... the Midwest is bigish, right? So that's this part of the Midwest. <laughs> it's not going to be like in Wisconsin somewhere. I I'm pretty sure they just mean the Midwest overall because okay, the way it's okay, broken yeah. up, it seems like places that are like bigger more metropolitan or just have a lot of black people to have their own (laughs) week uh there seems there seems to be so so like there's a houston one there's but then there's like all of like northeast for example but then there's also new york city so it seems to be split up between like regions versus large metro areas there's even toronto here Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's not just limited to the U.S. I mm-hmm. need to do a little bit of research, clearly. Well, we'll have to take a field trip. We'll do a live remote. <laughs> from Let's go on the food tour. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just follow them around like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> no, because y'all are going to hear me smacking on the podcast. Yes, we're grateful for ribs. <laughs> Today's black joy is crab cakes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Lord. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, mine is, I guess, kind of related because, like, you know, we've talked about, like, my sort of fitness journey um, lately. So, like, I probably shouldn't be eating all those ribs and crab cakes and things, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> um, but so my pure black joy for the week, um, I really just want to shout out this company um, because as I have been sort of changing the way that I eat and, you know, working out more and all of that sort of stuff, you know, part of of the whole thing is like getting new clothes to work mm-hmm. out in. Um, and so I really want to shout out this company. It's a black owned, queer owned company out of Alabama. What? If you have been on gay Twitter at all, um, <laughs> you will see that um, many of the gays have been um, shouting them out, support black owned businesses. Um, MCE Creations. Okay. And they, their, their stuff is mad cute, y'all. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> they've got joggers, they've got shorts, t-shirts, underwear, if that's your thing. Um, just <laughs> all sorts of just really cute stuff that like, as soon as I put it on my body, I was like, oh, 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these yams. Okay. Speaking of food. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, I look cute today. Like, and you know, someday when I'm able to leave my basement and like go work out in a gym, um, I feel like thanks to these, you know, entrepreneurial young black queer folks, um, whose names I wish I knew, but it doesn't, they don't seem to have an about section on their website. Um, but in any case, I want to shout out them. Please go buy all of their stuff. Their, their joggers, their shorts are cut so cute. I've got two pairs of their shorts and a pair of their joggers. And I'm obsessed. I'm going to keep buying them. They will have just open access to my credit card. Um, but yeah, just go support them because like they're they're giving me joy every time I put on some shorts and and go lift something heavy in my basement. So yes, I'm looking now. This is cute. Okay, it's cute, right? you about yeah. to be out here, Rocky? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Doing my little Kiara Lachey workout with my little shorts. Yes. <laughs> All eyes on these thighs. Yes. This <laughs> Well, Paige, do you have anything that's bringing you any black joy this week? Hmm. That is a good question. I think there's lots of things that have brought me joy. But um, specifically, oh, you know what? Did I talk to y'all about Concrete Cowboy? You did yes. a couple. Not on the podcast, though. Off, off the right. podcast. Right. Okay, well, let me do it here on the podcast because I'm still thinking about that movie and just <laughs> how good it is. I guess this this goes into into two things. Follow follow the thread. My pure black joy is revolving around um, just uh, black movies and TV and depicting black people doing things other than being traumatized and <laughs> and like in kind of ways that are like kind of niche but are absolutely part of the black experience. So mm-hmm. if you haven't watched Concrete Cowboy yet on Netflix, it is about um, the community of uh, black cowboys in Philadelphia specifically. Um, it has people who are actually part of like these communities of black horseback riders, black people who, who love horses, who race them, who take care of them, who ride them around the city. Uh, people who are actually part of those communities actually act in the film as well and were part mm. of the creation. Um, but then it does also star like Idris Elba and he was part of producing it because um, he wanted, um, I, I read that he specifically wanted more, wanted to support stories that uplift uh, black Americans specifically oh. and like the the stuff that isn't told enough. I just thought that that was beautiful. Another beautiful really aspect is. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's like specifically bring me those. <laughs> bring me those. <laughs> so I mean, I was a little black girl who loved horses. Um, I wanted one for a long time. My mom actually wanted to get me one, but it was just a little difficult logistically. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> but this movie gave me life gave me life and on a similar um note there's a anime coming out i think maybe also on netflix about the black samurai who yeah. was a person yes, in I real life yeah. yes yasuke 
Yes, that is coming with, uh, out. With Lakeith. Yes, yep. Lakeith Stanfield is mm. voicing the main character. That is bringing me joy. I haven't watched it yet because I think it maybe like just came out or it comes out in a couple days. Yeah. Either one. But just yes. Yes to this like diversity of black stories. I don't like if I don't feel like watching us get harassed by police or racists, I can choose something else. Thank goodness, because sometimes that feels like <laughs> most of what's out there, unless you just want to watch something older. So, yeah, shout out to those two um, and the diversity and multiplicity of blackness. That's what's bringing that. me joy. Absolutely. Amen. <laughs> Well, we hope this weekend you all go out and you find your own pure black joy. And of course that you join us in two weeks for our next episode. Um, as always, thank you both so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, as always, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> I love talking to y'all. I know. It's it's <laughs> it's it's the it's the highlight of my week every time that we get to do this. Yeah. Um yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's how, I mean, we're just so lucky we get to have our jobs and do this and get paid. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, because it is our job. So it's a good thing to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. And for all of you all, make sure you check the show notes for all those good links. We'll provide links also to all the things we just talked about that are making us happy. And make sure that you... Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Share this with all of your friends and family and people who need to hear it. And uh, I think that's it. Oh, and email us. Email us at thescore at mnopera.org. And any questions, comments, concerns, I guess, um, <laughs> let us know. Let us know what you're interested in, if there are any questions that perhaps we can answer. And um, we just look forward to uh, bringing you all in and hanging out with you. Um, so I guess that's it for now. Until we get to hang out again. Until we meet again. Yes. Bye, See you everybody. soon. Bye. Bye.